So you have these two men standing inside the governor's praetorium in Jerusalem on this very strange Passover weekend. One of them is a governing official representing the most powerful empire the world has ever seen. And another is a homeless peasant from a conquered territory called Galilee. One stands tall and confident and the other one slumps forward, bruised, beaten, labored, breathing. Another one is dressed in, or one is dressed in fine clothes and the other is in a blood-stained, tattered, purple robe. One of them has all the power in this situation and the other is at his mercy. Marcus Pontius Pilate ruled as the governor over the province of Judea from the years 26 to 36 AD. It is a period of 10, 10 and a half years. He was sent there by the emperor Tiberius, and this term of his was unusually long. He's actually tied with one of the guys for the longest time to rule over the province of Judea as prefect or as governor. We don't know exactly why, when most governors ruled for a term of one to three years, Pilate's there for 10. There are different theories. Uh, perhaps he was just very, uh, he had a great political savvy about him and just knew how to navigate the issues and those kinds of things. There are a number of people who think it has to do with a friendship that he had with a man by the name of Sejanus in Rome. And Sejanus had very close connections to the emperor and so that would have benefited Pilate in his career quite a bit. Or it could be that no one else wanted the job. The region of Judea was not an easy area to govern, primarily because of the passionate religion, the passionate monotheism of the Jewish people there. Whereas most other territories, when they were taken over by Rome, Rome would give them a fair amount of freedom and kind of expect them, though, in that freedom to adapt somewhat to the Roman way of life. And most territories, most peoples were happy to do that, to adapt to the Roman way of life, including the worship of the Roman gods and building temples and burning incense to Caesar. The Jewish people, however, because they believed that there was only one true God, refused to do those things. And, strangely enough, were actually granted exemption by the Roman Empire from having to do that. One of the only people, if not the only people, who did not have to practice Caesar worship or to set up temples to gods or Caesars in their land and in their places. Um, And that may seem strange to you because Rome does not mind using brute force whenever it has to. Doesn't mind at all and can do it pretty well. But what Rome values more than anything else is order. Peace, Pax Romana, the peace that kind of comes under their rule at least. And so they didn't mind actually compromising and giving a little bit to some conquered peoples as long as that did not get in the way of their own agenda. And because the Jewish people they knew were not going to give in on this, they gave this freedom, this exemption to them. Uh, The Jewish people were also exempt from military service because serving in the military would mean working on Saturdays, which was the Sabbath, and that was against the Jewish people's religious identity, and because they would end up eating meals that were against the Jewish religious dietary restrictions. And so the Jews were actually given some level of freedom because Rome wanted order. And that's why they sent Pilate there. And that's what they expected of Pilate was to maintain order in that region, in that province. And the results were mixed at best. 
From the very beginning, there was tension between Pilate and this people that he was governing over. It started early in his tenure when, uh, as the ruling authority, he decided to bring in these, these great standards, these big, like, golden shields, and hang them up in the temple. But the problem was these golden shields had images of Caesar on them, these kind of worship images. And whereas, again, most people would have no problem having those images hung up, but to the Jewish people, that's a violation of the second commandment, that you should have no graven images that should receive honor, worship, anything like that. And so the Jews revolted. Five days worth of protest, they traveled from Jerusalem to Caesarea, which was the, the kind of capital place where Pilate had his headquarters. It was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Five days they sat there and protested until finally Pilate said whatever, and he relented, had the shields taken down and brought back to Caesarea. Another time, Pilate decided to build an aqueduct for the city of Jerusalem, and you'd think that they would be grateful, and they probably would have, except for that Pilate used money from the temple's treasury, the sacred money from the treasury, to build that aqueduct. And again, the Jewish people revolted. This time, Pilate didn't back down, though. He had come to Jerusalem to visit, and so crowds of them gathered outside where he was staying to protest, and so he set up this situation where he had guards, soldiers, intermingle with the crowd, only wearing common people's clothing and having clubs in their hands hidden, and then when he gave the orders, they raised the clubs and began to beat everyone around them, beating many of the Jewish people to death, and the revolt was put down through bloodshed. Luke 13, 1, Luke tells just this little snippet about Pilate, and he gives like no other explanation for it, except for he says this one thing, Jesus heard, or someone told Jesus about the Galileans whom Pilate had uh, mixed their blood with their offerings. We don't know exactly what that is. Apparently, they're bringing offerings to Jerusalem to make some sort of sacrifices. Maybe it's over Passover, and some sort of altercation takes place, and Pilate had a number of them slaughtered. And so Pilate is constantly walking this tightrope. There's this tension here between trying to deal with enough force, to be forceful enough to keep the people in check, and yet to not be so forceful that the people uh, revolt, and therefore Pilate loses his job and possibly even his head. So he's always dealing with this tension and always walking this tightrope. As I said, he's stationed, he lives in Caesarea, but on particular uh, moments when Jerusalem is going to be packed, on particular moments when religious fervor and therefore patriotic fervor is going to be at a high, he knows he's got to be in Jerusalem. And Passover is one of those moments. As Ryan told us a couple weeks ago, Jerusalem would increase four to five times in its size, the amount of people coming in there over Passover. So Pilate's always there on Passover. And on this particular Passover, early in the morning, the Jewish religious leaders bring to Pilate this man, Jesus of Nazareth, claiming that he is a threat to the peace, a threat to society, that he's a revolutionary, that he's, that he's trying to raise up an army, that he's a king. And so they bring him in before Pilate, but Pilate, he's not real impressed with this Jesus. Doesn't seem to be a man who's a big threat. Doesn't seem to be a man who commands a lot of authority. And the other thing is he can't find anything wrong with him can't find any guilt in him. And he tells the Jews several times, I don't know what to charge this guy with. I don't have anything for him, but they persist. And then last week we heard Jim talked about how, how as kind of a token of goodwill, Pilate would set a prisoner free during uh, Passover. And so he offers to set Jesus free, but they say, no, 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 we don't want him. We want Barabbas. And so they call for Barabbas. And now Pilate will try another tactic in John 19, verse 1. 
Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers also twisted together a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and clothed him in a purple robe. And they kept coming up to him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and were slapping his face. The thinking here seems to be from Pilate that maybe he will satisfy the crowds if he can just punish Jesus enough. If he can give him a big enough beating to show enough consequences for it that maybe, maybe they'll be okay with that and he'll be able to let him go. But in the process, he hands them over to the, the soldiers and the soldiers take Jesus back into the barracks and flogging is not enough. They decide to have a little bit of fun with him. They've heard about this claim, King of the Jews. So they grab a crown that they twist together, probably from a date palm, a plant that grew in that region with these very long spikes that comes off the branches up to 12 inches. And they would twist this together and place this crown of thorns on his head. And then it says they find a purple robe, purple being the color of royalty. Now they wouldn't have probably a purple robe sitting around, but what they would have plenty of is old scarlet cloaks that were part of the Roman soldier's uniform. And you take an old one that fades enough, it begins to take on this purplish hue. And so they take this old tattered robe and they put it around Jesus. And then they come up to him with mock reverence, hail, king of the Jews. And they strike him across the face over and over again. And then they bring him out. Verse 4. Pilate went outside again and said to them, look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no grounds for charging him. And then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, here is the man. Now, again, the goal here seems to be to satisfy the crowd's bloodlust. That if he'll bring out a beaten and bruised and bloodied Jesus and maybe be able to say to them, look, I've I've taught him a lesson. Okay, he knows not to do what he's done. He's done now. Let's just leave it be. That seems to be the hope. But that's not all he does. He leaves Jesus in the crown of thorns. He leaves Jesus in the purple cloak. And he comes out paraded as this idiot king in front of a bunch of people who are mad that Jesus has said he's king. And so now they're coming after him. And this infuriates the crowd. It does not work in Jesus' favor to see him like this. And so we read in verse 6, When the chief priests and the temple servants saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! Pilate responded, take him and crucify him yourselves, since I find no grounds for charging him. Now here is again another little dig that Pilate is taking at the crowd. He knows they don't have the authority to crucify Jesus. They know it. They just admitted it to him in chapter 18. That's why they've taken him to Pilate. And so he throws this little jab at them. But then they say, we have a law, the Jews replied to him. And according to that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Pilate didn't know this part yet. Pilate knows about the whole claiming to be king thing, and he's already questioned Jesus a little bit about that. And when he did question him about this idea, he asked him, are you a king? And Jesus gave him this mysterious reply in John 18, my kingdom is not of this earth, which would probably seem strange to Pilate but almost kind of push it aside, whatever, whatever kind of gibberish he may be speaking in this moment. But then you add to it, Matthew says that during this time, 
Pilate's wife sent a message to Pilate saying, listen, I suffered a terrible dream over that man, Jesus of Nazareth. You have nothing to do with him. Whatever you're doing, have nothing to do with that man because there's something crazy going on here. And then Pilate's outside and he hears the Jewish people say that this man has claimed to be the son of God and now something new begins to stir inside of Pilate. Fear. So we read actually in verse eight, when Pilate heard this statement, He was more afraid than ever. And he went back into the headquarters and asked Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus did not give him an answer. Now, Pilate is probably not a religious man. Many of the Roman elite were cynical about things like this. And certainly he would not be believing that Jesus is the son of the one and only God. But there were these stories about these special teachers that were kind of considered like, they called them like divine men. These men who seem to have like a special connection to the supernatural, to the gods, a special power and a special insight. And and to hear all these things swirling around Jesus and to think that he just had this man flogged has to be causing some bit of tumult inside of Pilate. And so he goes and asks him, where are you from anyway? I don't know if Pilate is asking this on like just a surface level, like what region are you from, or if there's a deeper question that he's actually asking, but it doesn't matter because he's not going to be able to grasp the answer Jesus gives him, and Jesus knows that, and so he refuses to answer. And this would seem to be a terrible idea because when it comes to the trial of non-Roman citizens, and Jesus is not a Roman citizen, when it comes to the trial of non-Roman citizens, the governor is both judge and jury. He determines guilt or innocence. He discerns the punishment. And so you ought to be in his good graces. And Pilate says as much to Jesus, verse 10. So Pilate said to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. And this is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. This is in many ways, those two verses, I believe, are in many ways the key to this whole scene, to understanding this whole story. And and we're going to dive into those verses a little bit more in just a bit. But first, I want to take just kind of a little side note, a little time out to talk about this idea. You, You may have heard the phrase before, all sin is equal. If you've grown up in the church very long at all, I'm almost sure you've heard that statement. You've maybe even said that statement, all sin is equal. I believe I've probably said that statement before. And it's, it's a statement that, that seems to actually ring true on the surface. Because after all, all sin is sin. And all sin is against God. And all sin separates us from God. And all sin will be punished. But the problem with saying all sin is equal is that Jesus appears to disagree. Jesus says here in this statement that Pilate is committing a sin, but there is someone who is guilty of a greater sin, a worse sin than Pilate's. And there's some debate over who that someone is. He says, it's the one who handed me over to you. And there's some who think it may be Judas because Judas is the one in the Gospels who is always handing over, the betrayer who hands over. But more than likely, most scholars agree, and I would go with them, that the person he's referring to is Caiaphas, the high priest. 
Because Caiaphas is the one who has orchestrated this whole thing. And Judas didn't hand Jesus to Pilate. Caiaphas actually, he was in Caiaphas's possession and handed him over to Pilate. And he says that Caiaphas is guilty of a greater sin than even Peter, or than, than Pilate is. That's because Pilate is playing a passive role in all this. He's not actively seeking Jesus' death. He's simply been placed in this position of authority over this the most critical trial in history, not by his own doing, but he's been placed here by an authority greater than him. Yes, Caesar, but even above that, Jesus says your authority is from above, which is a reference to God himself has placed Pilate in these shoes. Now, don't get me wrong, his passivity is still sinful. When we know the good that we ought to do and we shrink back from doing it because of fear or because of discomfort, or because of apathy. That is sin. And Pilate, in his passivity, in his lack of doing the right thing, his failure to do that will lead to a profound miscarriage of justice. But Caiaphas, his sin is worse. Because Caiaphas has used his position and power to actively pursue the death of the Messiah to actively try to kill and bring down God's own son. And he and the leaders in this moment, they've got an ace up their sleeve and they're about to play it on Pilate. Verse 12. From that moment, Pilate kept trying to release him, but the Jews shouted, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Anyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And that statement right there at the end is the kicker. Tiberius was known to be a paranoid ruler, suspicious of treason often, and also known to deal swiftly and mercilessly with his enemies. And the people of this region have filed complaints against Pilate before. They've gone to Rome and made complaints about him. He knows that they're willing to do it again. So imagine if word gets to Tiberius that there's a man down in this region claiming to be king and Pilate had him in his custody and then let him off the hook. It's not going to go well for Pilate and he knows it. And he knows that the Jewish leaders have him now. So we read in verse 13, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus outside. Now, pause for just a second. That word brought. He brought Jesus. Probably better translated led. He led Jesus outside. It's a, it's a word that gets used a number of ways, um, often described kind of a forceful leading of someone. It's used sometimes to describe like the leading of an animal to a place that you need it to, to go or that you want it to go. And this word is used four different times about Jesus in the last couple chapters. This has basically been his reality for the last 12 hours from the moment that he was arrested in uh, the Garden of Gethsemane. At that point, he was bound up, tied up, and then led around, dragged around wherever they wanted him to go. First to the house of Annas, who was the father-in-law of the high priest, where they gathered around him, and Annas 
peppered him with questions about his doctrine and his identity and his theology. And then in disgust, one of the officials steps forward and just slaps Jesus across the face. And then they drag Jesus over to Caiaphas' house, the high priest, where he's questioned some more and some more. And then after that, they drag Jesus over to Pilate's headquarters, where Pilate has him stowed away probably in a cell while he stands outside and talks to the Jewish leaders. And then he goes back in and he summons Jesus and they drag him out and Pilate questions him. And then he drags him over to the soldiers where for the first time all day, Jesus' hands are finally untied only so that they can be stretched out and then wrapped around a post so they can flog him mercilessly. And they slap a crown on his head and a robe across him and they begin to slap him across the face over and over again. And then he's dragged outside, paraded outside in this fool's crown and a robe so that he can take shots at all the Jewish leaders by making Jesus look like an idiot in front of them. Over and over again, Jesus is pulled around and they do with him whatever they want. He is, it would seem, at the mercy of all these forces all these people conspiring together, whether it's for their own greed or for their own desire for power or their desire to save their own skin, all of these forces coming together to undo him. And he looks so powerless in this moment. Maybe you've felt like that before. Have you ever been in a moment, in a season of your life where you just felt like you were at the mercy of forces outside of your control. A season where it feels like you've just been dragged from one difficult trial to the next and for reasons that you could not understand, life just kept throwing difficult, painful, hard things at you. Maybe, maybe your health took an unexpected turn and began to just deteriorate, whether that was physical health from a diagnosis that you received and did not expect to get, or maybe that was mental health and you found yourself in a very dark place for a long time and try and struggle as you may, you could not pull yourself out of it. Maybe you lost someone very close to you. And if you could have done anything to stop, anything to undo it, you would have, but you were just powerless to change that situation. Maybe your finances just collapsed. You found yourself buried in debt and all the stress that comes along with that, trying to figure out how to fix this situation that seems unfixable and you could not understand why this kept happening to you. Or maybe, maybe you understood exactly why you were going through hard things. Maybe those painful things were the result of your own foolish and sinful decisions, whether those decisions were financial or relational or spiritual, and you know that you were somewhat at least to blame, but now the consequences that you were going through just seemed like too much to bear that you felt powerless to deal with all of it. Have you ever been there? Because I know, I know in a room this size, that, that there are people who, who haven't just been there, that they are there right now. That you're feeling those things in this moment. And maybe you do your best to try and put on a happy face and try and keep it together when you're out in front of other people, but on the inside you feel like you're falling apart. 
You're on this bicycle that's just like going down a steep hill too fast and, 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 and then you've begun to kind of lose control. Like you're, you're still on the bike, but you know already in your mind you've lost control, that the handlebars are shaking and that all it's gonna take is one little crack in the pavement, one little pebble, and everything's going to come crashing down. You're completely out of control in this moment. Have you ever felt like that? What do we do in moments like that? Pilate leads Jesus outside, and we read, picking up in verse 13, that he sat down on the judge's seat in a place called the Stone Pavement, but in Aramaic, Gabbatha, and it was the preparation day for the Passover, and it was about noon, and then he told the Jews, here is your king. Now, Pilate knows that they got him. He knows that they're about to force his hand and that he can't really do anything but give them what they want, but that's not going to prevent him from taking a couple more digs at them as he does it. So he brings Jesus out in the bloodied robe and the fool's crown and says to them, behold your king. Yeah, I know, I know this isn't the man you want, but listen to me, this weak, beaten down, backwoods Galilean peasant is the best you Jews will ever do. He'll later take those same words, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, and he'll have that nailed above Jesus' cross, and it infuriates them. And it infuriates them here. Look at verse 15. They shouted, take him away. Take him away. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, should I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. And then he handed him over to be crucified. We have no king but Caesar. These words on the lips of the chief priests are a betrayal of all that they were supposed to be as the leaders of God's people. The Old Testament taught that God was Israel's true king, that even the kings that reigned in the Old Testament, like David or Solomon, they were just meant to be representatives of the true king. But here... The religious leaders, the chief priests, shout out their allegiance to another king, to Caesar. This whole scene, everything about it, it's just a devastating tragedy. As first, they traded Jesus for Barabbas, and now they trade God for Caesar. And they condemn not just an innocent man, but the only innocent man to ever walk the earth. And they treat him like a pawn, using him and tearing him apart for their own selfish gain. And everything about this looks not just like a tragedy, but like the greatest tragedy that the world has ever seen. As they take the very one, John 1 says, that he, the Son of God, came to those who were his own and his own would not receive him. And in this very dark moment that plays out in front of our eyes, the greatest tragedy the world has ever seen. And yet, things are not always as they appear. I mentioned earlier that I I told you I I thought the key to this whole passage is in verses 10 and 11. I want to read that to you again. It's right after Jesus refuses to answer Pilate's question about where he's from. And Pilate says to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. 
This is why the one who handed me over to you is great, guilty of the greater sin. Here Pilate tells Jesus, I have the authority to execute you. I have the authority to release you. So speak to me. And Jesus does speak. But he speaks to correct him. It's not entirely true, Pilate. And it's that word authority. That's the big one. The word in the Greek is exousia. Exousia, it can be translated authority as it is here. Sometimes it's translated power, as in the power to do what you want in a given situation. That's why other times it's actually translated right, like I have the right, the freedom, the authority, the power to do whatever I want. This word, exousia, is used eight different times in John's gospel, mostly on the lips of Jesus. But the critical one, at least for our purposes today, comes in John 10. John 10, verses 17 through 18, where Jesus says these words, this is why the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down on my own. I have the right, that is, exousia, I have the authority, I have the power to lay it down, and I have the right, the exousia, the authority to take it up again. I have received this command from my Father. I have the authority, Jesus says. We said at the beginning... The two men stood there in the governor's praetorium on that day and that one of those men had all the power. And the amazing thing that no one could have ever seen coming, that no one would have ever guessed, was that it was the, blue, the bruised and bloodied peasant who had all the power. Which means Pilate is wrong. He does not have ultimate authority over Jesus' life. That authority that Pilate does have comes from above, which is where Jesus comes from, by the way. And the Father has granted him ultimate authority over his own life. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. Pilate doesn't take Jesus' life from him. All the power of the vast Roman Empire with its many resources and its mighty army is not enough power to take Jesus' life from him. Caiaphas doesn't take Jesus' life from him. All the political maneuvering and wisdom of the world's greatest politicians is not enough to outsmart Jesus, is not enough to take his life from him. He controls his own fate. He chooses by his own power, by his own authority, to lay down his life for his people. And it will be by that same authority that he takes it up again. And this is the big secret behind this entire scene that though Jesus looks powerless throughout John 18 and 19, the truth is he is sovereign over the whole event and he and the Father are about to take what looks to be the darkest moment in history and use it to create the greatest victory that the world has ever seen. The salvation of his people through the death and resurrection of his sins. This is how Gary Burge describes John 19 he, in his commentary on the gospel. He says, this is not the tragedy we think. This is not a moment for panic. There is something hopeful happening, something we didn't see at first glance. This scene, this hour, does not belong to Pilate or Caiaphas. It belongs to Jesus. And what looks like a tragedy that Jesus is going to die, in actuality, is really good news. That Jesus is going to die for you and for me, but he's not going to stay dead. 
And you want some more good news? Here's more good news. If it's true that Jesus is sovereign over what looks like his darkest hour, that means that he's also sovereign over yours. And if he and the Father can use this terrible moment for ultimate good, that means he can use your terrible moments for ultimate good. In fact, he says as much, or the Bible tells us as much in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purposes. All things, good and bad and tragic and painful and terrible, all things work together for the good of God's people, of those who are loved by him and who love him in return. And of course, that verse does not mean that we will never go through hard things doesn't mean that we get to avoid pain altogether. It didn't mean that for Jesus. What it means, though, is that even in those things, God will use that to shape me for my ultimate glory. To shape me. Actually, he says in the very next verse, Romans 8, 29, that it is used to make me, to conform me into the image of his son, to make you and I into the kinds of people that we were meant to be. All of us will go through hard things. Some of us will go through worse. Some of us in this room will go through, some of us in this room have gone through terrible things in your life. And in those moments, it is easy to ask, and you will ask why. Why me? And why this? And why now? And why here? And why? And, and the answer to that is, I don't know. I don't know why a lot of the hard things happen to us and probably won't know fully, this side of heaven at least. But what I do know is that Jesus is sovereign. And what I do know is that he's good. And what I do know is that he does not waste a moment of your suffering. That he does not waste a moment of your hardship. All of it, our moments of our deepest pain and our moments of our greatest, most shameful failures and our seasons of darkness and despair, he reigns over all of it and he walks with us through all of it and he can use all of it, which means we can have hope in all of it. Just before Jesus entered this very dark hour, he sat with his disciples in the upper room and told them that they would also go through some very dark hours. And he says in John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. You will have suffering in this world, but be courageous. I have conquered. That word is I have overcome the world. And then this really cool thing happens where John takes that same word in the book of Revelation. Revelation 12, he'll say, that we too, that Jesus' people can overcome. That we will overcome our enemy even when we go through hard things, even when he comes after us, even if it means death for us, we will be able to overcome. Revelation 12, 11, they conquered him, they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they did not love their lives to the point of death. That is, we know. That no matter what comes in this life, Jesus has overcome the world. So we will too. But not by our own strength. Not because we're going to muscle our way through it. We are powerless, unlike Jesus. 
But what what does John say? They overcome it by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. This church is how we overcome. Because we know that the one who was tried by Pilate and the Jews and went to the cross, that when he went to the cross, he paid the price for you and I. All of our sins and all of our failures and all of our worst decisions covered by the blood of Jesus. When we place our faith in him, when we come commit our life to him, what we got to see with two people uh, dedicating their life to Jesus in baptism and in faith to see that take place. We know in that moment that means sin has no more hold over their lives. That means death has no more hold over their lives. So whatever comes, even if it is suffering, even if it is death, they will overcome because Jesus has already done that for us. And so every Sunday we get together to remember this. And the reason we like to take this together is to remember that we are a body, we are a church, that he has purchased one family together and as a family, we take this. And so brothers and sisters, this is Christ's body, broken for us, let's take and eat. This is Christ's blood, and by this, we will overcome. So let's drink together. And now, let's stand and sing over the one who is sovereign over all things, including our deep and darkest moments.